Thank you so much. Are you awake this morning? Are you excited? Not to see me, but are you excited for what God has this morning? Amen. If you could just give me a little bit of monitor. Um, my, I've been preaching a lot the last two weeks, and so that would kind of help me out. There we go. Not overcompensate, so I won't be yelling at you this morning. Um, as your pastor so graciously extended the invitation uh, for me to come and be here with you, we were able to connect the last few years at Dr. Brown's conference in Branson, Missouri. And by the way, yesterday he uh, texted me and he was bragging on you all. And he likes to call you his platinum protege church. And so he said, be sure to send them my love and uh, his greetings. And he's just honored to be in connection with you all. And so I'm thankful uh, not only for him, but that he connected us together. And so thank you for the privilege to share God's word this morning. As I was uh, be praying for what would be right, we have one service. And um, when you have one service, you want to be sure that you're hearing his voice and you want to make sure that you get it right. And so as as I was praying, he began to share with me that there are some here this morning, and it may uh, be everyone. It may be one. I don't know who it's for this morning. But he began to list some things that would take you out of your personal season of drought. And if we're all honest, if we're candid, we have all been in seasons of drought. And when we're in the midst of drought, there are times in that season that we really don't know what to do next. We're looking, we're searching, we ask our prayer partners, we ask those who are closely aligned to us. Number one, will this season ever end? And if so, how do we shorten this season that we're in? So I want to talk to you this morning about five things, five very powerful things that are often ignored, overlooked, and unappreciated, when in fact they're five of the most irreplaceable things in the earth. Five things that if you apply these five, that they will swiftly and suddenly end your personal season of drought. I want you to look with me at Psalms 107. And verse 35, we'll be looking at a few texts, but the first one is Psalms 107 and verse 35. Every season in your life will create its own climate. I've had many ask me, well, Dr. Tracy, how do I know what season I'm in in my life? You can know what season you're in simply by what is thriving in your life. Now, I don't know about you, but we get snakes down in Texas. As a matter of fact, I had two in my garage this week. And so by virtue of knowing that there are snakes in my garage, I can easily discern that spring has arrived. Every season in your life, if you will take careful inventory of what is thriving in your life, you will be able to discern what season that you have entered. The first thing in your life that will help you, enable you to end a season of drought is a protected environment. Now I want you to document here this morning. I'm going to teach, preach. I'm going to teach first, and then we're going to minister the word. But the first thing that will enable you uh, for, to teach you how do you end your season of drought, number one, is a protected environment. We must prepare for mistakes and miracles. How many of you can relate to that? Amen. If we think that we're ever just going to enter a season where there are only miracles and no mistakes, we are grossly <laughs> in error. Because for every season that involves miracles, we will also encounter mistakes. We have to train for both tragedy as well as triumph. The Holy Spirit told me many years ago, he said, Tracy, if you're ever going to enjoy 
a season in your life where everything is thriving, you must first learn how to endure the season where everything in your life is dying. Can I say that again? If we are ever going to enjoy a season, and it is possible, where everything is thriving in our life, we must first learn how to survive a season when everything in our life is dying. You know, when I read through the Word, I was kind of awestruck at first because I was looking throughout the Bible for places and, and uh, promises and places of prosperity. And what I noticed in the Bible is for every place of promise, for every promised land, that next to that season where everything was thriving, that there would always be a desert connected to our promised land. Do you know that there will be seasons of doubt, discouragement, and disappointment? And how we respond in the season where everything is dying determines how quickly you and I will enter a place and the land where everything is thriving. Well, Dr. Tracy, what is a desert? A desert is best defined as this. It is any environment that consistently creates loss. Document that. A desert is any environment that consistently creates loss. The difference between Death Valley and the beautiful Hawaiian islands is not the intensity of the sun or the air atmospheric pressure, but the willingness of the environment to give and receive proportionately. There's someone here today who maybe you've been in an environment. It may be in a relationship, a geographical location, maybe in a business where you've invested much, but you've reaped little. And what was once a haven of rest has now become a desert in your life. And as a result, maybe you're spiritually, financially, are emotionally depleted because you've consistently deposited and not withdrawn on the equal basis of what you've deposited. And I believe this morning that God is going to speak to us. He's going to teach us. He's going to give us wisdom on how to transform our desert seasons back into a place of divine productivity. Psalms 107 and 35, God makes us a solemn promise. He said, I will turn your wilderness. How many of you realize that when God says that he will do something, that he will do it? God said, I will turn your wilderness into standing water, and I will exchange dry ground for rivers of living water. He said, I will rescue you. He said, I will force the productivity of your hands, and I will pour out my compassion on those who will diligently follow my plan. Do you know that your environment will influence your decisions and your discoveries? In the right environment, you will see everything that God has for your life. In the wrong environment, you will never be able to see what God has for your life. The difference between you being at home this morning and you being in church this morning is the environment. In the right environment, and I believe you have developed that this morning. In the right environment, God can reveal everything that he has for your life. In the wrong environment, you will only see what your enemy permits you to see. You know, your environment is crucial to your success. Many years ago, I was on an island about a thousand miles away from the nearest mainland. And as I stood on that air island, 
And it was beautiful. I mean, it was the perfect utopia. It's as if I just magically stepped, one of those deja vu moments where you feel as if you have stepped into a postcard, that you've just stepped over into it and everything around you is as beautiful as what that postcard had revealed to you. And as I'm standing there in this perfect utopia, I turn and I ask the marine biologist who was with me, I said, has it always been this beautiful? Has it always been this lush? Has it always been this fertile? And his answer 100% shocked me. And he said, no, Dr. Mitchell, he said, it hasn't always been this beautiful. He says at one time, he said, this was nothing more than volcanic rock. He said, there was absolutely nothing on this island. It was barren, totally infertile, not a blade of grass grew, not a flower, nothing. It was total volcanic ash. And I stood there dumbfounded and I looked at him and I said, well, tell me the secret. I said, how in the world it went in an environment that was totally unfruitful and unproductive? How in the world did that environment develop into the perfect utopia that I'm looking and I'm standing in today? And his words, I never will forget them. He said, Dr. Tracy, he said, over time, he said, as birds would fly southward and would fly over our island he said they would inadvertently loosen soil from their beak and and seed from their beak and from their feathers and he said over time as the winds would begin to migrate our direction he said the winds of change would blow soil over our island and he said given enough time He said, given enough time, he said, the winds that would bring forth the soil and the birds that would loosen and drop in seed. He said, over enough time, he said, the right soil combined with the right seed totally transformed the most hostile environment on planet Earth. And as I stood there, the Holy Spirit said to me, he said, exactly, he said, the same ingredients the same formula that transformed this barren place into a perfect utopia he said like natural like spiritual he said is an application of exactly what will happen in any geographical place in the earth when enough seed and enough soil combine together he said it will it will alter the most hostile environment in the earth Your environment matters. What you receive, who you receive, what word you allow to be spoken into your environment can transform your entire geographical community. Can I tell you that environments are never equal? You can put on scuba gear. I don't know why you would want to, but you can do it. You can jump out of airplanes too, but you could put on scuba gear and go to the very depths of the oceanic beings. You could survey all the wondrous glory that's beneath the ocean, but you can only stay in that environment for so long. Why? Because you have entered an environment to which you were not designed by God, number one, to live, or number two, to thrive. I believe some of you have been in an environment, and that may be in your personal life or on your job or whatever or wherever it is, that you have been living beneath the potential that God has for your life.
You're living in an environment that you've been sowing into, but in return is releasing nothing back into your life. And I believe that today for some of you, you're going to begin the ascent back up. You're going to begin the ascent back up to the place that God has designed that you live. It is his will to live in wholeness, to live in health, to live in prosperity. He is bringing you back. Today, he's going to release you to begin the ascent back up to the place that you were designed by God to thrive your atmosphere and can I tell you this atmosphere of this church is not only comprised by its headship but every person that comes through those doors brings something you're a contributor whether positive or negative whether you bring in your faith or you bring in your doubt when you walk in those back doors what are you bringing what are you depositing into this environment because if you come in with only the expectation that you're going to extract something and deposit nothing you will strip the environment of everything that God longs to do collectively in this body somebody say amen what are you doing number two come on I'm going to give you five things number two that will change your season of drought number two is a sanctified place I want to talk to you for a moment about divine placement because God creates places we know this and then he will always connect the person to the right geographical place your place of assignment will always be created first one of my favorite scripture verses Genesis 2 and 5 perhaps one of the most overlooked scripture verses it clearly says that God created a garden and then God just like us he steps back and he begins to survey his own creation and he begins to go through oh I like this oh no I really like what I did on Tuesday oh no what I did Thursday outshined what I did on Tuesday and he's going through his checklist observing his creation and then all of a sudden in Genesis 2 and verse 5 it's as if God has an uh-oh moment but how many of you know that God doesn't have uh-oh moments he has aha moments <laughs> and it's in two and five that God looks at the garden and he has like an, an aha moment and he says well I have a beautiful garden he said but there is no I found no man to till or to work the garden of which I have planted it's like a, a a farmer buying a parcel of land but not having anyone or an equipment to to process and to till the land of which he has bought so God looks out and I love this about God God looks out at his lack and he reaches in the ground in his lack and he raises up what he does not have and he breathes his prophetic breath on what he does not have and the moment that his breath hits his lack immediately it's no longer a lack but it becomes a living soil can I tell you there are things in our own lives that when we look at it it seems to be a deficiency it seems to be lack, a place of lack a place where nothing is growing nothing is thriving but just as God reached into the dirt and he says although I don't have a man he said I do have dirt and he said when my prophetic word touches the dirt it will become a man 
pause for a moment and just think, what is the missing equation, the missing variable in your life? And have you allowed the prophetic wind of the word of God? Have you spoken to what you do not have as if it were something that you did have? How are you speaking to your disease? How are you speaking to your finances? Are you declaring what God is declaring? Are you declaring what your enemy is declaring? When we start seeing what God sees, we'll start speaking what God speaks. Amen? Listen. That's the reason your promised land will always have a problem. I know we don't like hearing that, but it's true. Do you know that our personal promised land will always have a problem? If it doesn't have a problem, then you and I are totally unnecessary. We argue with God. Well, God, why did you send me there? God, why, why am I working there? God, why did you send me to that geographical territory, or God, why did you send me to that family? Because he needed a problem solver for that situation. Your promised land will always need you, or it's not really your promised land. Your entrance, how do you know if it's a place of promise? Because your entrance into your personal promised land will take time, effort, energy, and seed. Let me give you an analogy. Abraham, the Bible says, labored with great toil to enter the promised land, but Lot took Sodom by storm. There are things that those around you can get in a day, and you're struggling going, but God, you promised me X, Y, Z. And it's hard and it's difficult and it's not easy. And it's requiring faith and it's requiring seed and it's requiring love. And then you look over at nephew Lot and it seems like he conquers his thing in a day. You can always measure the worth of what you're pursuing by what it takes to achieve what you're pursuing. You can take Sodom in a day or you can labor intensely and you can reap the promises that are contained in your promised land. Joseph's entrance into Egypt was not majestic, but it was his place of permanency. When you discover the place, here's what happens. The place will release what is on the inside of you. When you're in place, every seed will flourish. Every broken place in your life will be made whole. Well, Dr. Tracy, how do I know if I'm in the right place? Because undeniable favor will be connected to the place. In his father's house, Joseph was nothing more than a rejected brother. He takes a trip south. He relocates geographically. All of a sudden, he goes from being the rejected, discarded, ununderstood brother... The Bible says that the moment he walked into Egypt, that he became father to Pharaoh. Same person, same gifts, same anointing, different geographical location. Can I tell you, there is geographical territory that has been assigned by God to us. We can step outside of the place or the position or the job or the relationship that God has for our life. And when we do, I promise you that nothing in your life will flourish. But when you begin to turn around and begin to walk back and willingly position yourself in the place that God has for you, everything in your life will suddenly align and will suddenly thrive. 
I think about Naomi, whose husband, they left Jerusalem. They left the house of bread, and they took a journey down to Moab. And in Moab, nothing in Naomi's life worked. Her husband and two sons were tragically killed. She was left alone, widowed, had no money, was impoverished, had no idea what she would do next. One daughter-in-law turns to leave her, and the other daughter-in-law bombards her with questions. What do you do when the one that you've always gone to for answers and solutions all of a sudden has no remedy? They have no answers. And Ruth goes and she tugs on the robe of Naomi and she says, Naomi, she said, we're broke. Our men are gone. I don't know what to do next. My sister just left. It's just me and you. We're unemployed. We're broke. We're crushed. What do we do now? And Naomi looks at her, and I'm going to paraphrase it. She said, Ruth, honey, she said, I'm sorry. She said, there's nothing left in me for you. I'm out of answers. I don't have any solutions. And Ruth, the perfect protege that she was, she said, oh, yeah, Naomi. She said, there's more in you than you remember. And she said, you know what? She said, if, if we'll just take a little journey, if we'll just go back to, the, to your God and to your land, if we'll, just, if we'll just change our mind and reposition ourselves in the earth, I'm fully convinced that something will shift. And the Bible says that together two broken women began to turn about face and they began to walk back to Jerusalem. And it says a moment that Naomi's feet stepped into the place of the promise that all of a sudden a wave, a supernatural wave of understanding a prophetic stirring in the spirit of Naomi washed over her. And she said, you know what, Ruth? She said, I've been thinking. She said, now that I'm back home, she said, I remember a man. I remember a field. I remember a kinsman redeemer. And they, she said, look, Ruth. She said, God not only brought us back, but he brought us back at the season of harvest. Can I tell you that geography matters? The place that you're employed, the, the family that, you're, that you enter into, the church, the network that you're associated with will determine what happens next in your life. In Moab, Naomi was a homeless widow. In Israel, she was a beneficiary to a fortune. Can I tell you, there are places where your enemies cannot thrive and your dreams will never die. There are places literally where God will step in. Just as the children of Israel went to cross the Red Sea. There are moments in your life. When as you're following God and your enemies are pursuing you. That God will step in. And he will close the curtain from heaven. And he will stop your enemies right where they are. There's someone today, I feel it in the I feel it in the spirit realm. There's someone who you have been following God with all of your heart. And I believe you're in this section. With all of your heart, with all of your mind. You've been full of passion for pursuing the things that God has for you. And momentarily your focus has been on the enemies that are pursuing you. And that may be in a court hearing. It may be, I don't know what enemy is pursuing you. Or the method 
method that they're using to pursue you. But I'm telling you, if you will keep following God and allow him to reposition you in the earth, that there will be a moment that you don't have to worry about your enemies anymore, but God will literally take a curtain in heaven and he will stop and he will say, that's enough. You've come far enough because I am taking my child to a place where their dreams cannot die and their enemies will never be able to thrive. Amen. Number three, are you receiving this morning? If not, I'm just going to preach myself happy. That's okay. Number three, third thing guaranteed to end your personal season of drought is a scheduled battle. A scheduled battle. History reveals there was a predetermined season in which kings would go out and fight for unclaimed territory. Can I tell you, it's my personal belief that I believe that God schedules battles in our lives. I knew you wouldn't say amen. Let me rephrase that. There are moments and days that are marked and highlighted on God's calendar. And they're called victory days. And they have your name assigned to that day. Can I tell you that God will never schedule a battle without giving you 100% confidence and assurance that you will win. God will never put his son or daughter in a battle that they cannot win. It's totally impossible. So when God says, you know what, babe, I've scheduled a battle in your life, immediately we do what? Oh, God, no, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm battle weary. I, 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 I can't go through that again. We don't perceive that when God schedules a battle, that God is really scheduling a victory. And the only way to get the victory is to go through the battle. We can't have victories apart from the battle. And so when we say, God, no, I don't want another battle in my life, you're saying, okay, God, I never want another victory in my life. Every battle in your life, 100%, you are scheduled to win. Globally, they tell us there are over 1 billion people. And I want you to say those words, 1 billion people. Okay, say it like you're familiar with the term billion. One billion people, okay, in the earth that are known as squatters. How many of you know what a squatter is? Don't get any ideas. They occupy and take possession of what does not lawfully belong to them. They pursue and protect what the lawful owner willingly neglects. There's a law called the law of adverse protection that declares property that is left unattended or abandoned for a predetermined number of years can be claimed by someone who desires it, possesses it, and preserves it for a predetermined number of years. A lady in London was recently awarded a $4 million estate because for 12 years she simply took care of the estate and acted as if it were hers. Now, how many of you would like that? Someone say amen. Imagine a, uh, going away in June on a holiday. I believe that's what you call vacation here, a holiday. Imagine going away on holiday in June and coming back. I have a few British friends. Coming back and you walk and you turn the key and you walk into your home and Ma'am, there's a woman that's cooking on your stove, and 
Sir, God forbid, this would be the death sentence at my house, that there's another man in my husband's recliner, and their children are out splashing around in the pool. And can I tell you that feeling that you would have as they are enjoying the rewards of what you have labored for? Can I tell you that's exactly what happens in the spiritual realm? When we become complacent concerning the territory that God has given us, because your enemy will always conquer what you leave unattended. Your enemy will always conquer what you leave unattended. Let me ask you this morning, who is possessing your assignment in the earth? Who's living in the home that should have been yours? Who's walking around with the spouse that God created for you? Who's living out their dreams of entrepreneurship and creating the business that God had your name assigned to? More importantly, why is someone else possessing what should have been yours? And are you willing to reclaim it? Are you willing to reclaim it? Do you know that you will never have to fight God for anything? You will never have to fight God for anything. By virtue of sonship, being heirs and joint heirs with Jesus... Everything that was awarded to him is awarded to us. That means I'm not having to fight my father for my healing. I don't have to fight with him. I don't have to win a battle to impress God. I don't have to fight God for anything. The only time I have to enter in a battle is when I have lost something to the hand of the enemy. Something that must be reclaimed or something that I have lost I need to get back. In the last few days, I believe that many of you have said, if the struggle is this difficult before the battle arrives, I'm not sure that this is a battle I really want to enter. Have you ever been in that position before? Where you're tired, you're weary? Thank you. I have a few honest people this morning. Amen. Thank you. Then in the last few days, you've thought, man, if the next battle, if I'm already feeling the waves before the storm that are coming. I'm not sure this is a battle I want to enter. Can I tell you that is exactly the lie that the enemy wants you to believe and buy into because your enemy is absolutely 100% intimidated by the fight that you might actually enter the battle, might actually stay in the battle, and God forbid might actually win the battle in your life. For the majority of us who are seasoned warriors... And by that, I mean you have a checklist that if you were to pull it out throughout all the years, for some of us decades, plural now, we were to pull out that checklist, oh yeah, I remember the day that God healed that. I remember the day that God sent a check for that. Oh, I remember the day when my son or daughter came back home. I remember the day when God restored my marriage. I remember the day where I came out of a bed of depression and entered a season of uncommon joy and expectation filled my heart. And I remember... For the majority of us, it's not that we can doubt that God will win. The problem with us is getting us back to the battlefield because we know that we can win, but we become complacent. And so we did what David did in 2 Samuel 11. Don't turn, just reference it. A seasoned warrior is not intimidated by the battle. They have the confidence that says, I've been here before and I am totally 100% confident that I will win. The struggle is getting back to the battlefield. Come on, someone. 2 Samuel 11, it says... And it came to pass at the time when kings would go forth to battle 
that David sent Joab and his servants and all of Israel into battle. But David tarried in Jerusalem and found Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Can I tell you that delay creates defeat? Delay will always create defeat. Who or what is keeping you from the battlefield? I believe there is someone in here this morning who, again, you, you really are hanging in the balance. Do I really want to keep fighting? Do I really want to press through to reclaim what the enemy has stolen, what the enemy has stripped from me? There's someone, and maybe it's a loved one, who is depending on you to stay in the battle. There are assignments that have been given to you that are depending on you to win. There are books that need to be written. There are businesses that need to be established. There is someone who is holding on to the fact that you will not lose focus, but you will stay in the battle. Oh, man, I wish to have time. Here we go. I was sharing with someone the other day. I love this analogy. I'm not sure if God gave it to me or to someone else, but I love it, so I'm going to share it with you this morning. I'm honest. The analogy, I want you to stop for just a moment, and I want you to imagine. You can close your eyes, or you can just let your mind wonder that as you're laying on your deathbed, and around you, you can picture in your mind your faithful friends, maybe your wife, your husband, children, your legacy of your grandchildren, and as they're standing by you, what they're thinking and what you're thinking is you're about to depart from this life. And now I want you to consider the fact that beyond the natural family and friends that would be in that room, that there's something else in that room. And that are all the dreams and all the plans and all the gifts that were assigned to your life. And I want you to imagine that as they're around you in their presence, the gifts, the talents, the callings, that as they're in that death room with you, let me ask you, are they celebrating because God entrusted them to you? Or are they moaning and screaming and wailing? God, why did you assign us to them? Because when they die, we're dying. And some of your dreams and gifts, what would it be like as they know that you're about to leave and that they didn't have a chance to live? What dreams, what gifts, what callings, what anointings will die when you die? Will your dreams celebrate you or will they die with you? Will your anointing celebrate you or we'll ask God, why did you assign me to them? There is a battle. There is a victory. There is a victory. There is a victory that we are scheduled. It is marked. It is highlighted. And it has our name on it. Number four. Perhaps my favorite. Number four, the fourth thing that will end your season of drought is your partnership with a prophetic person not a pathetic person, a prophetic person. Amen? Second Kings chapter 3. The Bible records one of the most intriguing miracles of all history. Three kings joined together to reclaim territory that, territory that had been stolen by the enemy. And seven days into their journey, they make a horrifying discovery. Imagine three kings, their entourage... 
They're going out to battle to reclaim territory that had been stolen by the enemy. Seven days as they arrive at what should be a place of refuge, a refueling station, a place where they get their ammunition, the water, the food, the things that they need to feed three armies. Imagine when they arrive and it's barren and desolate. What do you do when your place of provision is desolate? The dreams that you once had that were thriving are now dying. And with panic and chaos all around, the plan that was going to salvage your life now seemingly has the potential to destroy it. Or maybe you've left the safety and security of a 30-year career and to pursue your dreams of entrepreneurship. And at the very last moment, your strongest investor withholds funding. How do you turn crisis moment into a miracle moment? Seven days into the wilderness with provision depleted. Imagine these three kings began to consult with themselves. Kings that have all the wealth, the honor, the finances, and the resources at their disposal. And they come to a place where three of the wisest, most powerful, influential, wealthiest men on the planet, they stand together in a desert and they begin to look at each other. Hey man, do you have a plan? No, man. Do you have plan B? Oh, man, I think we need a plan B. Does anybody in our group, where are the men with all the wisdom? Do, what, do, what, what do we do? And in a moment of panic, they began to consult with themselves. And all of a sudden, one of the kings says, Hey, I remember a man by the name of Elijah. And he said, If there's anyone that will have a word from God for us to tell us what to do, it'll be Elijah. Can I tell you there are times when we must leave a place of barrenness to pursue a word that will release fruitfulness? Sometimes you and I have to leave the uh, conversation of what's familiar to receive a prophetic word from God. Imagine these three kings humble themselves and they go searching for a man who's known as possessing the wisdom of God. Let me ask you this morning, whose counsel are you pursuing? Who holds the answer to your current crisis? Are you pursuing the counsel of the righteous or the counsel of the wicked? How are you approaching a man or woman of God? How are you hosting them? How are you rewarding the wisdom of a man or God who when they speak it can change and rewrite your life forever? In times of crisis, how you and I approach a person who has the wisdom of God will determine, number one, how, and number two, if they respond. How and if they respond. It's all about the approach. The kings arrive. They seek out Elijah. Three kings, two stay in the chariot. And I'm going to paraphrase a lot of this. One of the kings gets out. He walks up to Elijah. He begins to tell Elijah what his need was. And let me just a parenthetical here. It doesn't say that he brought anything to Elijah to honor Elijah. He came to Elijah with a problem, but without a gift. And he came to Elijah and he said, Elijah, what do we do next? And with all the moxie and confidence of a man like Elijah. I mean, think about it. A man living in a cave, a dusty, dirty prophet with a girl around his waist. He looks at a king arrayed in the world's finest robes and entering in a chariot. And he's dusty and dirty. 
And he looks at a king and on the way Elijah could and he said, man, he said, look, number one, I don't know you. We're not in relationship. And number two, the things that I've heard concerning your reputation, he said, they're not good. He said, so as far as me giving you an answer for your crisis, he said, I'm really not interested. Imagine going to the person you think should have the answer that you need. And all of a sudden, as Elijah turns to walk away, that king bows in humility. And he said, if you'll wait just one moment. See, sometimes you have to pause in the middle of a no. He said, if you'll wait, just, just, just stay right here just one moment. And he looks at the chariot and he calls for King Jehoshaphat to come and stand beside him. And when Elijah sings, sees Jehoshaphat, he shakes his head and he said, I'm going to tell you something. He said, as for you, I have no answer for you. He said, but because you're in covenant with relationship with a man that I do know, a man I do respect, a man who I do honor. He said, because you're in relationship with him. He said, I'm going to turn your no into a yes. He said, because he's standing beside you. He said, I'm going to give you the answer that you need. Who are you in connection with? that has the power to turn a no into a yes? Who is so anointed by God that when their reputation is simply walking beside you, that your dreams will sovereignly come to pass because you are walking into covenant, because you are walking in covenant with someone who has the power to turn a no into a yes? Can I tell you, not everyone has a solution for your crisis. But there is a mentor, there is a prophet, there is a man or woman of God full of wisdom that can turn your failure into victory. Have you discerned them? How are you rewarding them? Do you honor them? And how do you react to their instruction? It's been intellectually proved that we are the sum total of five. I don't have time to preach it this morning, just listen. The sum total of five, I'm sure you're familiar with it, five people that, you're, that you are attached to, the five people that speak into your life on a daily or consistent basis and you into theirs, your life will never exceed the sum total of the five closest people to you. They will determine your health, your wealth, your wisdom, and the miracles that comes towards you are the miracles that walk away from you. I challenge you, when you go home in the private, private time when you're praying, you make a checklist of five. Who are the five that you're connected to and why? Who needs to be erased? Who needs to be replaced? Who needs to be brought in? Who needs to be extracted? Who are the five people that are speaking into your life on a daily basis? And why have you given them access? A couple went out looking for property to buy a new home. It was the perfect spot. You can imagine a new young couple that had just moved to the area. They were excited. They found out who the proprietor was, went to his office, sat down, explained they wanted to buy the property, said, I'm sorry, that property is absolutely 100% not for sale. I'm not interested. They thanked him, got up, went, walked down the hallway, turned to the left. As they were walking down the hallway, the proprietor came to the door and he said, young man, he said, tell me one more time, what was your name? He told him his name. He said, well, you're not by any chance related to James, are you? And he said, oh, yeah, we just moved. James is my uncle. And he said, well, if you know James, he said, then come back into my office. We need to talk. 
He said, I owe James a favor or two. Can I tell you that that month that they bought that property for 30% of the appraisal price because of the power of relationships? Who are you standing beside? Is there influence strong enough to persuade a man or woman of God to hear your petition? i got to move quick. Number five. Number five, you must possess a heart of expectation. I don't have time to break it down this morning, but asking and expectation are as bipolar apart as you can ever imagine. It is one thing to ask. It is another thing to expect. The reason that people who ask don't receive is marginally because there is no expectation connected to the asking. You must not only ask, but have a heart of expectation. And your, if your season of drought, and I believe it is, it's going to end, you must have a heart of expectation. I love this definition of expectation. I didn't write it, I just love it. Expectation is this, it is confidence that you believe that God's word is more powerful than your circumstances. It is confidence that you believe that God's word is more powerful than your circumstances. It is absolute proof that you trust in God. I want to take the next six or seven minutes and I want to hit three bullet points, three things that have the power to change a season of destruction to a blessing Bullet point number one is you must refuse loss, L-O-S-S. Your greatest challenge will not be surviving crisis, but recognizing the rewards in crisis. Every crisis in your life contains a miracle moment if you will discern it, recognize it, and pursue it. A few weeks ago, I asked a very influential man, and I like to study people of influence. I asked him his secrets to his success, and he said, Tracy, he said, I've learned that pain is simply opportunity for God to magnify his purpose for our lives in the earth. He said, what we call crisis, God calls opportunity. He said, what we call crisis, God calls opportunity. And I asked him to explain. He said, for 20 years, I served on the uh, uh, board, a, a large corporation. He said, under my 20 years there, he said, the company grew and expanded and our profits marginally increased. And then he said, suddenly, without warning, he said, I received a pink slip. And he said, I had no idea what to do. He said, distraught, I began to pray. I began to fast. I began to sow seeds into my future. And he said, I went out of town. He said, I stopped by a local church when I was out of town. I walked in. No one there knew who I was. He said, a man walked up to me again that I'd never met, did not know. And he said, sir, he said, I perceive that you've been deeply wounded. And he said, what you've perceived to be the end of a thing. He said, God wants me to tell you it's simply the beginning of a thing. And because of your faithfulness, God is going to reward you in an uncommon way. And those who did not honor your seeds of wisdom this last season have unwittingly released you into a supernatural season of increase in your life. He said, Tracy, he said, with in the next 30 days, he said, I received a job opportunity that doubled my income, that relocated me to a little piece of paradise. And he said, I'm happier than I've ever been in my life. He said, because in crisis, I chose instead of wallowing in my crisis, he said, I chose to look forward with great expectation. And he said, I refused loss. When we start seeing what God is seeing, when we start speaking what God is speaking, when we start seeing 
proceeding into the future of where God longingly takes us, he will relabel our crisis and turn it into opportunity. Number two, we must discern divine opportunity. Two things that can be discerned before they ever arrived, opportunity and opposition. I don't have time to hit those, but they're opportunity and opposition. A friend of mine named Rosemary Green many months ago called me, maybe a year or more, and she said, Dr. Tracy, she said, do you have a moment to talk? And I said, no, Rosemary, I'm real busy. I don't. She said, that's okay. She said, stay right on the line. She said, there's a lady that you have to talk to. And I thought, oh, well. So she patched me into a lady named Dorothy. And Dorothy began to share her story. And she began to tell me her experience that had just happened three days ago on a Sunday. And she said, you know, Dr. Tracy, she said, I had been looking. I've been, I've been trying to find a place to relocate our family she said, we live in um, more of an impoverished area of town. And she said, it's not safe for my children to go out and, and play in the yard day or night. She said, I'm afraid to leave them at home when I go for an errand or go to work. And she said, the school systems really aren't good there. And she said, so I've been praying that God would find us a new home, that he would enable us to move to a better school system. She said, Sunday, I had been praying intently in the spirit. And after church, she said, I went over and I dropped my children off at my sister's house. And she said, I got in the car and just decided just to go out and just, just pray in the spirit and drive. How many of you know that can be an interesting thing? She said, I got in the car and I just began to pray in the spirit and just began to worship. She said, a few hours later, she said, I found myself in a neighborhood that I had never been in before. And she said, I remember going down to the end of the cul-de-sac and she said, looking around and she said, I was going to type the coordinates in my GPS to find my way back out of the neighborhood. And she said, as I pulled over at the end of the cul-de-sac, and she said, I stopped my car. I looked over to the left, and she saw, saw, saw a beautiful home, and she said, I didn't see a for sale sign, and she said, even if I had, I probably wouldn't have gone out because I knew it was in a neighborhood that I would never, ever be able to afford. She said, but I kept feeling the presence, the weightedness of the Holy Spirit prompting me to get out of the car, and so she said, I, I tiptoed out of the car. She said, I knew this wasn't in a neighborhood that anyone knew me or really where I belonged. And she said, I was kind of apprehensive. And she said, I got up and I, I, I walked up to the window. And she said, in the bottom right-hand corner, left-hand corner of the window, there was a sign that said, for sale by owner. And she said, uh, I, with all apprehension, she said, I rang the doorbell. And she said, a nice man came in and asked me, would I like to look at his home? And I said, well, sure. And she said, again, I never expected that anything would come out of this. And she said, I began to walk through the home and I noticed that everything in the house was boxed up. And at the end of the tour, she said, I thanked him very much for showing me around. And, and he, he lingered as if he wanted just to continue the conversation. And he said, well, well, what brought you here? Our house hasn't been advertised. We don't have a real estate agent. There's not a big flashy sign in the car. And she said, well, what was I going to say? I just been praying in the spirit all day. And voila, I just, I ended up at your house. I mean, and she said, as I was talking, he said, well, he said, well, what, what are you doing? She said, well, I just came from church. And he said, well, are you a believer? And she said, oh, yes, yes, yes. We began to talk. She said some more about the faith. And she said, all of a sudden, after about 30 minutes, he said, would you wait right here? He walked over to the bottom of the steps and he yelled up the stairs. He said, honey, he said, I need you to come down here. He said, the woman that we've been waiting on has finally arrived. She said, I finally arrived. He said, yes, you finally arrived. And she said, well, what do you mean? 
And he said, we've had everything boxed up. He said, we have another house across town that we're ready to move into. This house is totally debt free. But our deal with God was this, before we moved into that home, that we would sow, because this house has been such a blessing to us, we would sow this house 100% debt free into the life of a believer who had been praying, who needed to raise a godly family in it, and who God would sovereignly lead to our doorstep. I bet you'd clap louder than that if that was your new house. Come on. Can I buy five minutes in a vow? Five, please? Okay, all right, listen. E, E, buy a vow. See, that's a vow, right? Okay. Tracy, do do things like that really happen? They happen when you have a heart of expectation. When you sit at home and say, well, you know what? It's just not fair. It's not fair that my children can't go outside. It's not fair that my children don't have a a better school system to go to. It's not fair that not this woman, her faith went before her. She refused loss. She followed the instruction of the Holy Spirit. And with great expectation, she fully believed that God would move. Amen. I'm going to close with this. I have to listen. There is reclaiming and restoration power this morning. A few months ago, I guess more than that now, I was in and I brought this testimony with me. I had her document it from Sister Adams. Approximately two months ago, I was in South Texas at a church called Harvest for Lost Souls. There had been an explosive miracle working service and a few weeks later, I received this testimony from her. She said, Dear Dr. Tracy, I've been a faithful member of our church for over two years She said, while you were here, you spoke about miracles, and I took a leap of faith, and I began to believe again for the impossible. She said, you spoke to my doubt, and I began to believe again. I began to believe that I would see my grandson, who, according to the calendar, his birthday was about to turn 16, and I'd not seen him since he was three. I had not seen my blood grandson in over 13 years. She said, that morning we prayed, I stretched forth my faith, I planted a seed, Not only financial seed, but a seed of faith, a seed of expectation. And she said, through a series of events that only God could orchestrate, she said, I was standing in line. And she said, all of a sudden at the checkout line, I began to hear a very familiar voice. And she said, I turned around into my shock, (laughs) but not really. She said, was my grandson's mother, blood mother. And I turned and looked. And she said, tell me about my grandson. Is he smart? Is he handsome? Do you have a picture? What is he like? Is he intelligent? Is he popular? Does he have friends? What are they like? Where does he live? Does he have any siblings? Can I see him? Then she asked the question that all grandmothers really want to know. She said, well, tell me, does my grandson know Jesus? Does he have a relationship with Christ? She hung her head and she said, I'm sorry. She said, we don't, on Sundays, we don't get up and take him to church. But every Sunday morning, he gets up, gets himself and his siblings dressed. And a little church bus comes by and takes he and his siblings to church. And for years, he went to children's church. And now he's old enough to be a children's church worker. And he works in that department. And she said, well, is it a good church? Is is there a church that's close by? What's the name of the church? And She said he goes to a church called Harvest for Lost Souls. 
And she said, he goes to where? You mean to tell me that for the last two years that my grandson has been down the street and around the corner and a block away? He's been in the same church that I've been in. He's been in the same church that I'm an intercessor in, that I paint the walls of the church that I sow into, that I work. You mean this whole time that I've been praying that my grandson's been across the street. She said, Dr. Tracy, the next morning, the next Sunday morning, she said, my grandson didn't take a bus to church, but I went by and I picked up my grandson. And for the first time in 13 years, my grandson and I sit on the front row side by side and we worshiped God together. One woman, one woman, who chose to believe God. Do things like that really happen? Yes. I have stacks and stacks of emails and documented testimonies of relational reconciliation, of physical healing, of financial deliverance, over and over and over. And as I've studied, what is the commonality between all of them? It is men and women of God who've willingly made the decisive decision to walk out of their desert and walk towards the place that's been promised them. Today I've given you a five-fold step on how to end your season of drought indefinitely. How to walk in not only to the place of the promises, but how to possess them. It's another thing to walk into the promised land. It's an entirely different thing to fight the battle so that you can remain a permanent fixture in the promised land. Number one was discovering the place that you've been designed by God to thrive. There are places you may you know it in your life. God's dealt with you. That you're not seeing the full potential of the gifts. You're not seeing the full potential of your dreams being manifest because at some place in your life, you're out of position. Number two was to position yourself to receive a divine instruction. Number three was your willingness to stay in a scheduled battle. For those of you who are in the middle of a battle or about to approach a battle, I challenge you, I beg you, I implore you, do not run from your battle because it's not a battle, it's a victory. It is a victory that has been mislabeled a battle. You will never enter into a God battle that you have not been designed by God to win. Number four was to embrace a prophetic person. Each person in this room, you have been assigned to someone who has a prophetic mantle on their life. How are you approaching them? How are you responding to their instruction? How are you rewarding them? How are you investing back into their life? And number five, are you possessing a heart of expectation? Are you really possessing a heart of expectation? Who or what are you not reaching for? Are you sidelined on the bench of defeat? Or do you, just like the beautiful woman that came up here this morning and shared her sister a simple testimony on how Tuesday she began to just confess? It's that simple. Just began to confess. Had a heart of expectation. She looked at her fear and said, no more. No more will I be bound to the yoke of fear, anxiety, depression. But I command you, fear, to leave me. I command you, dysfunction, to leave me. I command you, physical infirmity, to leave me. 
I cast you out and I receive. See, it's one thing to cast down. It's another thing to stand under open heaven with arms outstretched and to receive. Sometimes we're so busy casting down powers and principalities that we neglect the second part of that equation, where it's to stand and receive. Father, we thank you for your healing. We thank you for your salvation. We thank you for restitution. We thank you for prosperity. We thank you that you're a God that redeems, a God that restores. What are you believing for? What are you reaching for? What dream will die when you die? What gift will die when you die? What dream will live because you lived? What gift will thrive because you've made it up your mind that it can and it will thrive? Will you stand with me this morning? Thank you. Hallelujah. Thank you. Hallelujah. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Will you just close your eyes and if you want to, just raise your hands in a prayer of surrender this morning. Father, we thank you that your word is true and powerful. We thank you that we've had an opportunity to come sit at your feet to receive a divine instruction. Father, we thank you that we are sitting under an open heaven, that we have access to every gift, every plan, every dream, that healing rivers flow in this place, that mercy and grace and healing and prosperity and restitution and reconciliation Father, that they're all available and they're free gifts to us. Father, we lift up our hands and today with great expectation, we not only refuse loss, but Father, we reach. We reach for the promises. We reach for the blessings. We make a conscious decision today to walk out of the season of drought and into the land where every dream lives and every enemy, Father, cannot trespass. We thank you that you're removing wrong people and you're reassigning right people. We thank you for the one that you spoke to this morning, that they're entering into a season where their enemies cannot follow. We thank you. We build a hedge of protection around them that no weapon formed against them shall, can, or will prosper. And we surrender our mantle, our authority in the earth to you, Father. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.